From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. Diana DeGette is the only member of Colorado's congressional delegation who was serving during the last impeachment. To me, the standards and the risks seem so much greater now. Contrasting the Clinton and Trump eras. Then, the FBI says an avowed white supremacist planned to blow up a Pueblo synagogue. They've arrested him. We'll hear from the leader of Temple Emanuel about whether he thinks Jews are safe in this country. Also, you know that video of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi slurring her words? That was a deep fake. A media forensics expert at CU helps us understand the coming threat. Plus, a school in Durango did a lot of soul-searching when it banned cell phones. Let's remove all the excuses because we know this is what's best for kids. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Impeachment is a rare thing, and just one member of Colorado's current congressional delegation was part of the last one. That's Diana DeGette. She was in her first term when Bill Clinton was impeached. Now there's the prospect of another with President Donald Trump. I met DeGette, a Democrat, at her Denver field office Monday and asked how it feels once again to be involved in impeachment proceedings. It's one of the two most serious things you do in Congress. A declaration of war and impeachment of the president are the two most serious things that you do. And even even with the Clinton impeachment, even though the Democrats in general felt like what Bill Clinton did was not a high crime or misdemeanor. Still, I spent a lot of my time reading the original documents, the Federalist Papers, some of the early British cases to try to understand exactly what those standards should be. And now, 20 years later, I see the new members of Congress trying to grapple with this too. And people like me are sort of trying to help them understand how you go about deciding these things. What feels different about this moment from 20 years ago? Well, it's a lot more partisan right now, although it was pretty partisan during the Clinton impeachment, too. To me, though, the standards and the risks seem so much greater now because what Donald Trump did, asking Ukraine to interfere in a U.S. presidential election to try to undermine his one of his main opponents seems very serious to me. And, and in some ways, it has echoes over what happened in the 2016 election with the Russian interference. Once we start having debates in this country about foreign countries getting involved in our elections, that's really disturbing from a constitutional standpoint. I'd like to pick up on your phrasing there, what Donald Trump did. It sounds like you've convicted him. When I say what Donald Trump did, what I mean is he himself has admitted that he said on a telephone call to the prime minister of Ukraine, now I need you to do me a favor. I need you to investigate uh, Biden. And so that's what I mean. He, He did that. I haven't convicted him, but I do think it's prima facie evidence of a very serious offense. Our D.C. reporter, Caitlin Kim, has been talking to some other members of Colorado's delegation from the Clinton impeachment era. And your former Republican colleagues say they remember the Republicans consulting with Democrats to set the rules of impeachment, a process they view as far more bipartisan than the current one. Can you do some comparing and contrasting from memory? I don't remember 
the Republicans consulting with us on the rules, but I wasn't on the Judiciary Committee at that time, and I'm not on the Judiciary Committee now. I will say my colleagues tell me that the rules are really better now in terms of equal protection for the president. He, he has the right to have attorneys there. They have a right to question. They have a right to ask for documents. So I don't remember how the rules were, but I'm told that the rules now are, are at least as fair or more fair. You represent Denver, a solidly Democratic district. I'm curious what sorts of conversations you're having with the Republican members of the Colorado delegation about this. Are you in regular contact? And if so, what are the conversations around impeachment like? Well, I'm the senior member of the Colorado delegation, which means my main job is to convene the bi-monthly breakfast that we have. And in our last delegation breakfast, which was last month, we pretty much talked about this impeachment situation for most of the breakfast. I am not going to tell you what the discussion was, but what people don't realize a lot about the Colorado delegation is we're a small delegation, and so we even if we disagree, we try to be civil to each other. We try to not surprise each other. We try to let each other in on, on what we're thinking. And we actually had a very civil discussion about what was going on. Do you sense, because outwardly, it seems that there's very little Republican support for this. Do you sense that that needle is moving at the very least? Privately, many Republicans are telling me that they have real concerns about what happened here. And those concerns are growing as more career diplomats, intelligence officers, military personnel are coming forward to both confirm that telephone conversation that, that President Trump had, but also what happened with the aid to Ukraine. A lot of Republicans are getting very concerned as they see really the depth of this effort that was happening by the Trump administration to use U.S. aid and international policy in a very risky part of the world to influence the U.S. domestic elections. I don't know how this is going to come out in the end. You know, one of the issues that we have here is just the partisanship in, in the U.S. today. Still, if you look at the polls, the base of Republican uh, supporters is against impeachment. And so my colleagues are thinking about, well, what do I do? Do I go along with impeaching the president, knowing that my base is against it, or do I do what I might personally think is the right thing? And I think that's a hard decision for them to make. But I, I happen to think that we should look at the Constitution and what the definition of high crimes and misdemeanors is, look at the actions that happened here, and make the judgment based on that. I think it needs to be made on a constitutional basis, not a political basis. Is that possible? I would hope so. I mean, it happened in the Nixon impeachment. The vast majority of Americans supported Nixon when this started. And then by the end, when the evidence came out, it was actually a group of Republican senators that went to Nixon and said, you need to step down. Congresswoman, thank you for being with us. And great being with you. U.S. Representative Diana DeGette, a Denver Democrat. She's the only current member of Colorado's congressional delegation who served at the time of the Clinton impeachment. We have reached out to every Republican member of the Colorado delegation and hope to bring you that view soon.
The community around Temple Emmanuel in Pueblo is still absorbing the news that a white supremacist allegedly planned to blow up the synagogue this past weekend. The FBI and the U.S. Attorney's Office arrested this Pueblo resident, they announced Monday. And the synagogue's leader says it's a wake-up call that places of worship are easy targets. Temple Emmanuel's Mike Atlas Acuna joins us on the phone. Mike, thank you for being with us. You're welcome. When did you find out about this planned attack, which fortunately was not carried out? Uh, I found out when the FBI called me yesterday around 10 a.m. And they called to say they wanted to meet with me regarding something involving the temple, but they didn't disclose to me what that was at the point. And so we set the meeting up for 2 o'clock. And then I started receiving calls and emails from different folks letting me know that they had heard the press conference in Denver And then that's when I found out exactly what the plot was. What was your reaction? Well, my first reaction was, thank God, that uh, the FBI and the Pueblo Police Department were on this and that they were able to stop this from happening. That was my first response, that, you know, gratefulness and uh, that it didn't happen. And so I I, I saw this as a a very positive day. (laughs) It's interesting. Emmanuel means God is with us. I I wonder to what extent you attribute this to the work of law enforcement and to what extent you are thanking the divine right now. Well, the Jewish thought is that, uh, you know, we we are grateful for for police officers and and we're grateful for the people who serve us, but we're also grateful that God gave these people the abilities to do the jobs that they do to protect us or to heal us or to... uh, So whether there's a divine intervention here, I don't know. But I know that God gives us all abilities to do things, and these police officers have the abilities to save us. What kind of security do you have in place? Like, does the temple have armed guards? Yes, we do. We have uh, armed guards at our services, and we also have many members who carry. Uh, We have a sign outside the synagogue that says, this is not a gun-free zone. I feel like people who put those kind of signs up are just asking for trouble. Um, so we try to avert anybody from even thinking about coming in and shooting us. Um, we lock the doors. We always have somebody at the door so that if somebody is coming in, we know who they are. But this, having this happen, we have now are going to uh, start putting, we're going to install cameras on the exterior of the synagogue in our social hall and have 24-hour monitoring. Does it disappoint you that you have to do that? It does, but it's the reality we all live in, and it's not only for synagogues, but it's also for churches. I mean, many churches have been shot up, um, so it, it is a reality. And the, the other thing I want to say is that this man is a transplant to Pueblo. This is not Pueblo. Pueblo has embraced the Jewish community. We've been here 119 years, and this is some crazy person who comes to our city and then stirs the pot. And so I don't want the world to think that Pueblo is an anti-Semitic, anti-racist community, because it's not. After the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in Pittsburgh, which killed 11, injured 7, some people no doubt questioned whether going to Temple was safe. Uh, You know, meanwhile, the suspect in this case allegedly told the FBI he wanted Jews to know they aren't welcome in Pueblo. Uh, You've reflected there that that is not the wider community sentiment. But more broadly, are Jews safe in America today? Well, um, I I think Jews are as safe as any other um, 
church or or, or uh, church in, in in the community. I mean, church. Yeah, I I don't. As a Jew, I live in Pueblo, and I'm never encounter anti-Semitic. Neither do my granddaughters or my daughters or my my wife. We are well known in the community as being Jewish, and never. I I only get total respect, and in total, in the in the country as a whole. Uh, yeah, there are bad things that are happening, but I I don't think we should be vigilant and we should be aware. But we still have to go on and live our lives. And bottom line is, we still live in the greatest country in the world. Mike, thanks for being with us. I know it's been a long day, and I appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Mike Atlas Acuna is president of the board at Temple Emanuel in Pueblo, which was the target of a thwarted attack. Voter manipulation is sure to be front and center in the 2020 election, just as it was in 2016. With that in mind, a bill co-sponsored by Colorado's Cory Gardner passed in the U.S. Senate. It addresses so-called deep fake videos, digital manipulations of real content intended to depict events that didn't occur and thus mislead voters. A notable recent example, of course, is that clip of House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. We want to give this president the opportunity to do something historic for our country. So in that video created by a right-wing group, footage of Pelosi was slowed down to make it seem like she was drunk or high. Well, Jeff Smith has thought a lot about the countless ramifications of deepfakes. He's associate director of CU Denver's Media Forensics Department, and he consults with the federal government on this. And Jeff, welcome to the program. Good morning. Uh, so this bill calls on Homeland Security to study the rise of deepfakes and determine the threats they pose. It occurs to me with the Pelosi video, that could have been achieved a long time ago. I mean, just by slowing videotape. How sophisticated might deepfakes get? Well, yeah, that the example you provided is technically not a deepfake. It's a Sometimes we call it a cheap fake. A cheap fake. Yeah. All right. Yeah. So slowing down video, that's something that has been uh, available for uh, quite some time. So it's just a matter of of someone with uh, the interest to create a video that that makes somebody look uh, funny. And how much more sophisticated might these get? So a deep fake is using deep learning technology to uh, create the ability on demand to make a person say something that they didn't say. Deep learning technology, what do you mean? Yeah, so deep learning is a computer programming to uh, model a problem and create a prediction. So in this case, the prediction is how a person's face looks when they're saying certain words or how their voice sounds when they're saying certain words. So it's it's not easy, but it is uh, it's achievable right now. And does that mean you take existing video and you manipulate it or you are starting from scratch? Like you're creating the person's face and moving mouth from scratch? Both. Both. Yeah. Um, the, uh, the best technique right now is taking a video of somebody and using that material to puppet somebody else's face. So I would create a, a video of my friend saying, I'm Ryan Warner and I am on the radio. 
And then I would make a deep fake of you saying what that person said. And are we on some subtle level um, just sort of biologically attuned to recognize that as fake? I mean, when you look at these, are there clues, tips that this isn't quite right? Or do we need more sophisticated computer algorithms to detect this stuff now? We definitely need more sophisticated techniques for detecting this material. Okay, so you've been tricked? Uh, I wouldn't say I've been tricked, but it's <laughs> but visually you can see some of the cues from uh, how a person's face is pasted onto another person's face. Um, but if somebody sees something that they that they want to see, then they'll share it and and take it as uh, as truth without questioning it. That's interesting. If you ascribe to the message the deep fake is telling you, you're probably less. Um, able or willing uh, or take the time to question its veracity. Certainly, yeah. And in a way, that's the audience the deepfake probably intends to reach. So where are we with countering this? Uh, Algorithms that might detect something like this before a media outlet were to distribute it. So there's two different prongs for addressing this problem right now. Okay. And that we'll see more uh, support coming from uh, the legislation that was passed. One prong is detection. The other is verification. So with detection, it's uh, deploying algorithms on social media platforms to review all material that's uploaded. I see. So it's scouring video. Well, instance. so there's millions of videos and images that are uploaded every day. Uh-huh. So of all of that material that's uploaded, uh, each one to uh, run algorithms against it and detect how uh, real that material is. So that's detection. The other prong is verification. And that's, uh, there's a recent announcement with Adobe and partners with New York Times. And and that will be the capability basically to take material that was created from beginning, say on a phone, and verifying its uh, provenance throughout sharing and and then to uploading. So that actually is an earlier intervention. Correct, yeah. Okay. That's closer to the point of creation, if you will. You mentioned Adobe, which does a lot of editing software, including our own here at Colorado Public Radio. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I was thinking about what the free speech connections are to this. If you think of a deep fake as a satire Mm -hmm. or a send-up, and that's what you argue in court. Uh, might you have a leg to stand on? Uh, potentially. With, certainly as the laws as they exist now, yeah. Uh-huh. Um, I think we will see over time more laws to prevent the creation of a deep fake without someone's consent. And I think that's really what distinguishes between me taking a video of somebody in public space doing something and then posting that to the internet and me creating a video of somebody saying something that they never said and posting that to the internet. But there's a lot of comedy that relies on that. Sure, sure. Uh, but that is an impersonator. You know, in traditional methods, a person impersonating somebody else. Um, but with deepfakes, we're creating a video of somebody that never existed. We're using their likeness. Jeff Smith joins us, Associate Director of the National Center for Media Forensics, which you may or may not know is at CU Denver. We're talking about deep fakes. Uh, he's been researching these. He's consulting with the federal government as well. Uh, and how 
far behind, ahead of the curve? Would you say the federal government is on this? Uh, this is something that's gone on for many, many years in terms of techniques for fabricating media and then techniques to detect the fabrication. Okay, this is not new territory, in other words. No, no. Uh, the new territory that deep fakes push is the ability to make a video of somebody saying something that they didn't. Um, so before with face swapping techniques, the person is still saying what they said uh, from the source video. But with deep fakes, the deep learned model can uh, dynamically create imagery of a person. And this is what you're working on in part with DARPA. That's the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. What sort of expertise or skill are you lending? Uh, the creation of manipulated videos. So, uh, so you're making these as a laboratory for this kind of study? That is correct. Okay. Yes. Yeah. It's important uh, to understand how things are created. I guess it is. But does that mean you're mm -hmm. teaching yourself and students, you know, all of the skills you need to deceive? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you could look at it that way. Um, but it's important to understand how material can be fabricated, the limits of that, so we can understand the threat. What are the limits? Uh, if I were to make a deep fake of you, for example, yeah, I would I, have to... I, I seem to be the target of all your yeah, examples. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you're the only person I can see at the moment. So uh, I have to, first of all, have source video of you. Okay. And then I have to have a target video that I will use to puppet your, uh, your persona. And those two videos uh, or sets of images... Uh, they have to be similar to achieve really good results. Right. They kind of stretch the gap in between. Exactly. And that's hard to bridge right now. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but that's going to change. Uh, technology will will increase and it, it, I mean, capabilities. It, it, it does occur to me that the leaps forward that Hollywood makes so that scenes, you know, in a sci-fi movie are more believable are going to democratize and lend themselves to this kind of, you know, nefarious purpose. Definitely. Well, I, I, it's not nefarious if Hollywood uses it, right? But yeah, there, this is a, the deep fake technology is very useful. It could save Hollywood millions of dollars, uh, while at the same time, capabilities uh, can be used for uh, nefarious reasons, right? Like Photoshop has been around for a long time. Let's wrap up with what you think the worst case deep fake scenario is. What are you trying to avoid in about um, the last minute? Yeah, I think you've got about uh, uh, millions of videos that are shared every day. And if one of those is a deep fake of somebody saying something that they didn't actually say, you can victimize that person in, uh, in uh, ways that, are, that could ruin their, their reputation or perhaps make a, a group of people react in a certain way. So politically, obviously, this is a, a big concern. And uh, a deep fake could incite a riot. It could... Uh, change voter uh, uh, sentiment. Uh, but ultimately, I think we're not seeing that right now. And I, I think we'll be prepared when we do. Um, that's optimistic. I'm pleased to hear it. Jeff Smith, Associate Director of the National Center for Media Forensics at CU Denver. We talked about deep fakes and cheap fakes, too. Major concern heading into 2020 and the subject of a bill in Congress co-sponsored by Colorado's Cory Gardner. <laughs>
The lung disease cystic fibrosis used to be a death sentence for a child. Today, the average lifespan is 44 years old. For people like Kate Dankinich, living with the disease means frequent doctor's visits, lots of medication, and home therapy. Dankinich is 17, lives in Colorado Springs, and she explains that one therapy involves putting on a respiratory vest for an hour in the morning and again at night. It's literally just a vest that I put on that fills with air and it shakes my lungs to hopefully expel some of the mucus, also known as phlegm, from my lungs because cystic fibrosis is an illness that causes a lot of really thick mucus to build up in your lungs, restricting your airways. So a window into her world there. Well, a new drug therapy, which some doctors are calling revolutionary, has been approved. It gets to the genetic roots of CF. Dankinich will be starting it in a few weeks. I'm just really hoping for some lifestyle improvements and helping me not have to focus my life solely on, oh, how many treatments have you done today? How many hours have you done today? Um, You know, hopefully being able to do things outside of treatments more so than I am able to do today. Dr. Edith Zemanek is a pediatric pulmonologist at Children's Hospital Colorado. She is also... Kate Dankinich's doctor and took part in the nationwide research that led to this new breakthrough therapy. And doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. To hear Kate describe it, people with cystic fibrosis sort of feel tethered to their treatment, almost captive to therapy. Uh, What are some of the symptoms that they contend with day in and day out? Absolutely. Children with CF, it's a genetic condition, so they're born with it, and it affects their lungs and digestive tract. And it really is, as Kate explained, this buildup of mucus and phlegm that gets into the lungs and into other organ systems um, that causes chronic infection, inflammation, that ultimately leads to breakdown of the lungs um, and makes it very difficult also to digest food and gain weight. Yeah, I wasn't aware of the digestive aspects of this. Is that simply because the mucus goes into other systems? It has to do with the function of the pancreas, that it gets clogged with mucus, and so they can't um, produce digestive enzymes. So this is one of the biggest problems children face early in life, is it can be very difficult to put on weight, and that actually makes it even harder for their lungs to develop and fight infection. I understand some folks take as many as 30 to 40 pills a day. Yes. um, CF is... Absolutely has a huge treatment burden, as um, Kate described. It You have to do airway treatments to clear out mucus from your lungs every day just to stay healthy. And then when you're feeling sick, you know, have more cough, you may need to add extra treatments and then take many pills to help with digestion and fight infections. I think back to when I was a kid and how I hated rituals. I hated bath time. I hated having to brush my teeth. The notion of being a little kid and having to tend to your health this way, morning and night, gosh, that's tough. It's very tough. And I think this is really a whole family disease because everyone has to participate. And really, uh, there is just so much um, burden to this. About one in 3,000 or so children born in the U.S. has cystic fibrosis Uh, And this indeed used to be a death sentence. Correct. Uh, It really was um, considered a fatal disease of childhood, Um, whereas now uh, life expectancy, as you said, is now in the 40s, which is a great improvement. However, it's still 
we want to do much better. Yeah, what tends to kill people in their 40s? Um, So this tends to be a progression of lung disease, and it happens over decades. Um, And so this is really something that people have to start taking care of very early on. And even with our current treatments, people still require hospitalizations, many um, treatments, IV antibiotic treatments in the hospital, So very difficult. So this is not all home therapy by any means? No. Okay. Well, Dr. Zamanik, tell us about the new therapy. I understand it's a three-drug combo. Correct. It's it's called a triple combination, and it's in a class of medications called CFTR modulators. And what that is is there's a protein in CF that doesn't work well. And that really... That is a protein in my body isn't working properly. Correct. Correct. And it's called um, the CFTR protein is is the name for it. And that protein leads to really all the problems um, that uh, happen in CF. And so what these medications do, these modulators, actually help that protein to work better. And with that protein working better, the lungs can function better, the digestive system can function better. So it really has many different effects on the body. And what have you seen from the preliminary research? Yeah, so there were um, two large studies that were done and with this drug. And what they showed is that people who took the drug had about a 13% improvement in their lung function, which really is one of the main measures in CF for um, how people are doing. And that's a really dramatic response. Now, 13% to the outsider might not seem like right. a huge if, really... if I had 13% off shoes, I wouldn't be all impressed right. with the deal. I mean, this is really unprecedented in CF to see these kinds of improvements. And really, you know, to translate into what that means for somebody with CF, that could be decades of life for them. Um, and then the other thing is that people really felt so much better when they took these drugs. And I think what Kate was saying about, you know, having some hope that this is going to help with her lifestyle is really a huge thing. And, and when people took these medications, they reported much less symptoms. Their day-to-day functioning was much better. And they were able to gain weight. Well, of course, there's such a connection between psychological health and you know, physical health that if you feel better mentally, that has to have effects over the course of your life on your body, too. Absolutely. And um, I think, you know, CF is a chronic disease um, and it's very difficult. It, you know, it can cause a lot of hardship and having something that can help you to feel better, be able to exercise more, be able to participate in sports and school and work is all really important. Uh, are, are, were these drugs known to the, for lack of a better term, cystic fibrosis community? Was this taking a drug that was for something entirely different? No, these are novel drugs. So these were really developed over the past 20 years um, with the idea of having something that you could take orally that would impact the protein. And 20 years ago, I think this was really a dream that, you know, could we do this? And we now, this is actually the fourth drug that's come on the market, um, but it is appears to be the most effective. And importantly, it's also going to be available for 90% of people who have CF, because the way these drugs work, they only work depending on certain genetic mutations. So if you have certain mutations that cause your cystic fibrosis, you can be eligible for these drugs. And this one targets 90% of the population. Wide applicability. That's thrilling. Correct. Which is really new. Prior to this, we had um, drugs that would help and maybe not even as effectively, but would help about 50 to 60 percent of people. Have you taken a moment to just... um do a little dance in your house? Or like, I, I wonder if you've been able to absorb the kind of um, 
uh, gravitas of this. I I think so. It, it is a little surreal. Um, I think that there's really been a two-pronged feelings about this. You know, one is we're very excited and we really want to get all of our patients that qualify onto this drug as quickly as possible. We also, this drug right now is approved for children age 12 and older. So our next um, steps are going to be to try to get this drug for younger children. So we're already participating in clinical trials down to age six. Um, in addition, you know, while this helps 90% of people, there are 10% of people that are not going to qualify for this drug mm-hmm. and potentially others who may have side effects um, or don't tolerate it for another reason. So we're really focusing now on getting treatments to for those remaining people so that everyone can have an effective treatment. What I hear you saying is, yes, there's room for elation. And then we look at the next front in the battle. Absolutely. You know, I read that patients with cystic fibrosis used to be unsure about attending college because they knew they'd die young. Should they now be planning for retirement? Absolutely. We hope so. Um, And, you know, I think the the story of cystic fibrosis has really always been one of hope, where we've seen progress um, in smaller ways and in big ways over the years. And we really want to provide our families with this hope for the future. And we want them to be planning for school and families. And so many of these developments have happened even in the course of your own lifetime, which is remarkable. Um, Cystic fibrosis actually has become a model for how people advocate for the study of genetic diseases and research new drugs. So there's a kind of broad benefit to this movement, no? Correct. Um, I mean, cystic fibrosis is a chronic disease, and we've really developed a care model that creates these care centers with multidisciplinary care to improve how patients are cared for. So you're going to have lung doctors, you're going to have digestive doctors, all these folks Correct. talking and to each other. Things, physical therapists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, so a whole team. And also we have a large clinical trials network that's been really important. And so bringing these to other disease processes has been really critical. Like what? Um, so... Any kind of type of chronic disease, diabetes, um, other muscle diseases um, that require ongoing care. Um, In addition, uh, I think now CF is really taking um, a step in looking at what other genetic diseases are doing because they have technologies that are improving their treatment. And now we want to apply those to CF to find a genetic cure. Thanks so much, Dr. Zemanik. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Congratulations, uh, Dr. Edith Zemanik, pediatric pulmonologist at Children's Hospital Colorado. She helped research a new therapy for cystic fibrosis. The three-drug combo, rather, was just approved by the FDA. In between classes, middle and high school students often aren't talking to each other. They're staring at their phones. Kids say it's how they stay connected nowadays. But studies show students without cell phones during the school day perform better. And some studies link heavy cell phone use to depression and anxiety. As part of our series Teens Under Stress, we check out a school in Colorado that banned phones. Shane Voss leads Mountain Middle School in Durango, and he spoke with my colleague Avery Lill. What role do you think cell phone use plays in the current adolescent mental health crisis? I think it's bigger than, uh, than we think, and I, I do see that we've had an increase in anxiety levels, depression levels, to you know, a very serious problem in our region with teen suicide, and I, I think there is 
a direct correlation with the amount of cell phone use in, in terms of social media, bullying, uh, cyberbullying, whatever you want to call it. And so what we've tried to do at our school is create a safe zone, which is you know, the eight hours of a school day um, where students don't have to worry about that added extra pressure. And I want to talk about that safe zone. Your school has banned cell phones on campus for seven years. And I understand teachers actually brought that idea forward. What were they seeing? I think they were just saying it was a massive distraction. And you know, we started to see more and more students uh, with phones. And the, the problem just became so overwhelming that a, a lot of teachers were struggling to get students to be present, stay focused. The cell phones are off and in the backpacks before they enter our building and not out and uh, in use until they exit the building at the end of the school day. And you said that social media and cell phones, they can create a sort of 24-hour bullying cycle. Is that right? I think this is where we've underestimated the problem as educators and parents uh, that our students now with heightened levels of anxiety and depression, are teasing each other, picking on each other, saying things that are, you know, false or or whatever, 24 hours a day. Are parents part of the problem, the way they use their cell phones or the boundaries they do and don't set for their students? Absolutely. I, I think they, it's a learned behavior, right? And so those parameters of not you know, using your cell phone while you're driving, uh, not using your cell phone when you're having a family dinner, being present, being focused on the person that's sitting across from you and having a, an actual conversation. These are learned social behaviors. And so parents um, need to model, you know, appropriate usage as well. We're getting our kids ready for the world of work. And uh, you're present, you're focused, you're not checked out, and you're not on social media when you're, when you're in a business meeting. You know, we encourage our parents and they have a full understanding that if they have an emergency issue, they can contact our student at any time during a school day by calling the front office. And uh, we do have a phone in each classroom to get a hold of those students. The cell phone policy, it's evolved. I understand initially kids could hang on to their phones before school and that they just had to shut them off when school started. What were you seeing? You know, we let the, the students into the building at 745 and the class starts at 8. And so what we saw were a lot of students sitting around in the hallways, not talking to each other, but on their phones, engaged in other types of digital talking with Snapchats and Instagram and, and, and such. But it was kind of eerie that they were all sitting next to each other, but not talking to each other. And so the next year, what we decided to do is say, let's just change this and and they have to, you know, turn the phone off, put it in their backpack before they enter the building. And now that 15-minute time as they're waiting for class, students are actually talking to each other. They're talking to teachers and they're talking to each other. And, and instead of sitting and staring at a phone for 15 minutes waiting for class to start. Once you banned phones completely, did it take some kids a while to settle down and focus? I think it's it's definitely a learned behavior that took some time for some students and you know, there's a, a recent Stanford study. The number one skill to teach kids right now is to be indistractable. And uh, we have kids that are multitasking by trying to do homework with a phone next to them, Snapchatting, and then they got Netflix on their laptop, and they got all these you know, music going on. And it just doesn't work, right? So during the school day, we're trying to teach them the skill of being indistractable. And focusing their energy on one thing, one conversation, one skill or concept at a time, 
And this does take kids uh, a lot of time and effort, especially at the middle school age, to do this. But I think this is the very core of why our school is reaching distinction accreditation ratings with our scores. Our students are learning to be indistractable and focus on the subject matter at hand. And just being kids for a day instead of you know, being checked out on their, on their phones on social media. Do you notice a difference between the atmosphere at your school and other schools that use phones? I think it's palpable, and uh, you can feel it as soon as you walk in the door that there is a different culture. It's kind of like the zombie apocalypse when you walk down some of the hallways and you have all these kids in the hallways not talking to each other, but they're on their phones talking to each other. And you also spend some of your advisory periods talking about social and emotional skills and cell phone etiquette. So it's not just the ban. There's this other component, right? A lot of education. Our advisory program is all based on social-emotional learning skills, diving deeply into the symptoms of anxiety and really empowering students. And we added a new class this year called Mountain Strong, where they're diving even deeper into those character strengths and and how to um, empower students. Let's bring in some students now. Henry and Grace are both in eighth grade at Mountain Middle School. During the day, do you think about your cell phone at school? Because I know the band's been in place the whole time you've been in middle school. For me, personally, when I get to school, I'm normally on it about 10 minutes before school starts and then it's off. And about for the first half an hour of school, you just it's in the back of my mind. But once class starts, then it's just kind of out the window and I'm not really thinking about it. And then at the end of school, I'm not really focused on that because I haven't seen it or been on it for the past seven to six hours. Like, towards the end of the day, I start thinking about it and thinking about, like, did my mom send me a text to say where I'm going after school and, or something like that. Both teens think that while students may not want to admit it, they like what the ban achieves. I feel like everybody complains about it, and everybody says, like, oh, I really wish I could be on my phone. But I think subconsciously everybody realized that it's good for them. Like, everybody looks at it as a negative thing, but it's actually really positive for our like our moods and our focus levels it's also like people who have their phones on them all day and who are like on their phones all day don't really get human interaction like you could call texting human interaction but it's not really to like interact you need to be face to face and talking shane what would you say to a school leader who might be listening who's considering a cell phone ban Yeah, my advice is get your staff on board. It can't be policed by the principal only, right? And so we're all in this together for the betterment of our students. I think it's a slippery slope to say every classroom, it's up to the teacher what they're going to do, what the policy is going to be. And I I taught in a school like that, and that didn't work because then you have the cool teacher across the hallway that allows it, and you have the teacher that's, you know, referred to as overly strict trying to enforce it in their room. So it has to be 100% consensus with your staff, and it has to be consistent. And when you look at the big picture, do you find that cell phone use and teaching students how to use cell phones appropriately is as important or maybe even more important than reading, writing, and arithmetic? I see it as being equally as important because the social skills are the skills that will kind of determine their academic achievement and future performance, right? So, and if this is what's best for kids so they can focus and be present on learning, 
then let's do it. If that means we're going to buy 30 Chromebooks for every classroom or whatever it takes for technology, is that so that's no longer an, an excuse for teachers to say they have to use their cell phone because we don't have any calculators or whatever, then yeah, talk to your superintendent or your principal and say, let's let's prioritize our budget. Let's remove all the excuses because we know this is what's best for kids and we're going to have fewer kids facing depression and anxiety. The mental health piece of this is huge and that can't be ignored. Shane Voss there, head of Mountain Middle School. It's a charter school in Durango. You also heard from eighth graders Henry and Grace. They spoke with my colleague Avery Lill, who's actually with me in the studio now. Hi, Avery. Hi, Ryan. It's a really important discussion. Uh, You're part of the CPR reporting team behind the series Teens Under Stress. We've been getting a lot of feedback to this series. What do people have to say? People, they've written in to share their experiences as teens, as parents, teachers. One caught my attention. A listener wrote in to say, one thing that's changed since my high school days in the mid-90s is how serious sports have become. Mm. I was in cross country and it was my stress relief. Some of the emails are harder to read, like a mom who wrote about her child who refuses to go to school because he doesn't see the point. People have also asked questions about the pressures teens face through Colorado Wonders. Are there themes to those questions? For sure. People want to know more about how heavy homework loads and pressures in school contribute to the stress teens feel. Quite a few people also wrote in with questions about social media, mental health, coping techniques, technology. There have even been a few interesting questions about sports. About sports. Lots of questions. Those will inform our reporting in the next few months as the Teens Under Stress series continues. Uh, could we answer a question right now? Absolutely. Okay. This question, it comes from Victoria Liebman. She has two teenage daughters, and she was actually at a marching band competition with one of her girls when she recorded this question. So you can hear that in the background. I found that one thing that really limits my girls' time on their phones is they've been so busy with high school and activities that... It's kind of self-limiting, and that's been a great thing. But I've always wondered, even you know, when they were in elementary school all the way up until high school, what kind of effect does staring into a little uh, iPhone screen have on their eyesight? Um, that's my biggest question. I've never really gotten a good answer to that. Thank you. So I'll admit, as a person who spends a lot of time on my phone and on computer screens for work, to keep up with friends and just to entertain myself, I have also worried, what is this doing to my eyes? We got in touch with Barbara Horn. She's the president of the American Optometric Association. She says, yeah, this is a problem, especially for kids and teens. We know that children are now spending a lot of time on their screens and looking at their tablets or devices and their phones, not only just for personal use, but in the classroom as well. So it's increasing over time. And in doing that, everybody needs to know, but children especially, they should take frequent breaks from that because staring at a screen too long can cause you to get headaches, to have eye strain. You may not be blinking properly, so your eyes might feel dry. There are a number of things that can occur when you're using a device for too long. She also mentioned that when people stare at something close to their faces, like we do with screens, it can increase the risk of nearsightedness. But her recommendation on how to take breaks is very practical. We recommend to take breaks um, at least every 20 minutes, take a 20-second break and look 20 feet away. So we call it the 20-20-20 rule. The 20-20-20 rule. Okay, that's good to keep in mind. I also do the night shift thing where it changes the screen quality in the in the darker oh, I love hours. that setting on my phone. Yeah. Avery, thanks so much for sharing this with us. Thanks, Ryan. It's my colleague Avery Lill, who's working on the CPR series Teens Under Stress. What do you want to know about the pressures teens face? 
can find the stories and ask your questions at cbr.org teens. Okay, finally today, new music from a mainstay on the Denver scene, Chimney Choir, is known for their experimental performances, including occasional collaborations with the dance company Wonderbound. Here's Chimney Choir vocalist and multi-instrumentalist Chris Dricky. It's so much fun to have the aesthetic beauty of dancers to kind of animate the sonic terrain that we're doing. It's really a perfect way to partner with another mode of art because they make what we're doing visual and uh, emotional and are so expressive with it. In the distance I can see a desert of uncertainty Sing a little song I'll keep moving I'll keep moving on Earlier this year, Chimney Choir visited the CPR Performance Studio to share their song An Alternate Life It's the first single off of their upcoming album From Denver band Chimney Choir, their new album, Light Shadow, comes out in December. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.